Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello, my name is Adam Smith. I work for University College London at the NIHR, and today I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. This week, we're recording on location from the sunny climate of the University of Sydney, Susan Wackel. Is it Wackel? Am I saying that wrong? Wackel. (laughs) School of Nursing and Midwifery, and it's 30 degree heat while the UK is covered in snow, so it's awful, isn't it? It's really terrible. Um, (laughs) I'm delighted to be joined today by uh, Louisa Crine. Crine? Got that right. Nice. Anybody who's listened to my podcast report knows I'm, I'm... Bad with surnames. Um, from here at the University of Sydney, and also Kathy Taylor Rubin, yep. got that right. Mm-hmm. Um, from Macquarie. 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 <laughs> you almost oh. made it through. You know what? Well, maybe we should just start all over again, and I'll <laughs> ask pronunciations first. So. Um, Kathy Taylor-Rubin from Macquarie University, and I gather you're also jobbing clinicians as well. So where, where do you do your day, is it your day job? Where do you yeah. do your work? Yeah, so I'm, um, I do two days a week uh, work at um, Eastern Suburb Speech Pathology, which is a private practice working with adults in the community. Uh, how about yeah, you, Kathy? You're uh, the same. No, I work in the public sector. So I work in a... Um, a public hospital here in Sydney, War Memorial Hospital, which is part of Uniting Care and New South Wales um, Southeastern Local Health District. So, so you're working for the dark side. <laughs> Pretty much private practice. <laughs> no, but very. And needed. that makes you the equivalent of you know. I'm working for the good guys. One of the I'm, I'm, I'm Darth Vader. <laughs> you're a Jedi Knight. <laughs> Makes sense, actually. So um, today we're <laughs> today we're going to be talking about language and communication in the dementias, and this is the third of a first of a two-part global special. Uh, in part two, we're going to be joined by another panel from University College London, who uh, work in the uh, same field, I believe. Um, it's also a topic that we've discussed a little bit before, and one that has proven to be one of our top listened to podcasts. So no pressure, you two. Um, <laughs> Just uh, by way of introduction, uh, and I stole this from Louise's briefing, um, communication impairment will affect people with dementia as some course of the disease. Such an impairment can have a devastating uh, effect on the person with dementia themselves, but also on those who care for them. And for the people with primary progressive aphasia, gradual and insidious deterioration of the ability to communicate profoundly affects their lives and that of their partners. Mm. And so that's primarily the topic we're going to talk about today. So okay, I'm not going to ramble on any more than I already have. So let's start with some proper introductions and let's get the experts talking about this. So <laughs> Louisa, could you start with telling us a little bit about yourself and um, yeah. Yeah, so. sure. So um, you'll hear in my accent, I'm actually originally from Germany. I grew up in Cologne, but I studied um, my bachelor's and master's degree in speech pathology in Munich. And as part of my master's degree, I came over to the University of Sydney and had the pleasure to um, work together with Kathy Taylor and Dr. Karen Crute, um, who are, you know, the, who are my um, <laughs> my role models in in the area of um, PPA, and um, yeah, helped them out with with a research project, and have been kind of working with uh, Kathy ever since on, yeah, just collaborating on different projects um, since 2013. Fantastic. And mm. Kathy. 
Yeah, well, uh, I'm. my background is I'm a speech pathologist. I did my undergraduate degree here in Sydney and then PPA sort of pulled me <laughs> toward it. Um, came from my clinical work. I started seeing people with PPA. And so and initially I did a, a master's by research um, and then at, that was at Sydney University. And then... Um, then you converted. Then I sort of thought, oh, now I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing when I was doing the Masters. I should do all this again. So I decided to do the PhD and I went across to Macquarie um, with uh, Lindsay Nichols, who's a very highly esteemed aphasiologist. And, yeah, that's about it. So do you both work together in any way at all now? Or are you just former colleagues or friends? Or how do you know each other? Um, so... So as part of my master's degree, um, I did an internship um, at the University of Sydney with Karen Crute. At that time, Karen Crute was collaborating with Kathy at, you know, as a practicing clinician at War Memorial Hospital. And I was basically the research assistant. So um, and, and I liked what, you know, Kathy was doing in because I was able to see everything that I'd learned about in theory, actually in practice. Um, and I guess I just kept pestering Kathy <laughs> and um, was able to, um, yeah, just um, do a little bit of a practical internship at War Memorial. Um, and um, and so, so we don't work together as clinicians, um, but more in research. So we've also, we're in a mentoring relationship now as well. Oh, okay. Um, and some collaborations. Yeah, yes. Mm. Collaborations. Research collaborations yeah. more than yeah. clinical. Yeah. Uh, and how far, obviously, you've finished your PhD. No, Kathy. no. Oh, no, no, you're both still. I'm, yeah. I'm still so going. So how far are you in, Kathy? I'm a little over halfway. Yeah. yeah. Hold on. So you're doing it over five or? No, no, I did the first. Because this is a rare population, um, a rare condition, um, I needed to be uh, have access to people with the condition. And so I continued to work part-time. Um, and so the first um, half of my PhD I did part-time, but now I'm, I'm going to finish this next bit over the next um, year and a bit, full-time. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. So you've got a pretty intensive <clears throat> yeah. 2019 mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, how about you, Louisa? Same for me. So I'm, um, well, I did the whole thing full-time, uh, but I'm two-thirds in, so I've... I've Got oh, one you're year to go. Doing it in reverse. Are you now going part time, having been full time? No, no. I've always been full time, and I'm just finishing up. So that that's my last year now. Okay. Yeah. And finding time to work as well, then. So yeah, apparently. We've got a few questions <laughs> later on about how we managed to <laughs> find a work life balance. <clears throat> so um, okay, Louisa, coming to you first. Mm. Could you tell us? what the focus of your PhD actually is? Yeah, um, so my focus is uh, so obviously the area of dementia um, and focusing on the early identification of communication difficulties in dementia. Um, so yeah, trying to kind of address that gap of service delivery which people with dementia are currently experiencing because, you know, as you said before, um, communication impairment will affect everyone at some stage of their disease it's not you know not necessarily that only people in the later stages of the disease have communication impairment they can actually start quite early um, and PPA is a special case of that but also you know people with Alzheimer's dementia might have um, communication impairment that will affect them to a certain extent some people more some people less um, but the problem is that um, often they're not 
identified early enough or the problem's not identified early enough, then they don't get the support that they need. I mean, early intervention is probably, in a progressive disease, it's one of the most important things that we start, you know, moving ahead or moving forward quickly and, and early so that in the later stages um, when the people have more difficulties that they might, that they already have some kinds of strategies, um, um, you know, at hand, but also to kind of um, um, stop the, you know, the, the, the difficulties from moving forward or even um, improving what, what might be a problem. So is there a, is there a kind of, is there a typical point? I know obviously, you know, Alzheimer's and dementia affects everybody differently mm. at different times in different ways. But is there a point where communication difficulties start to to kick in? Because I could imagine, you know, just like particularly in years gone by, people mm. would have just assumed, oh, well, that's just a normal part of the disease. We have to put mm. up with it then. Mm. I mean, clearly your work suggests otherwise. So is, is there a point where that comes in? and? I'm not too sure. I don't know if there's any research on that, to be honest. I mean, I think, you know, there there are certain characteristic patterns of um, how communication impairment affects the the different types of dementia. So for Alzheimer's dementia, the the most common symptom would be word finding difficulties in the early, earliest stages. Um, But I think there's some research out also suggesting that actually the writing and reading or writing abilities or, um, you know, the sort of coherence in in speaking is affected early. And then we have Mm -hmm. our PBA expert here, um, you know, where where language is actually the most dominant um, symptom or language impairment is the most dominant symptom from the the, early, early stages. Yeah, in the primary progressive aphasias, it's it's, um, the predominant symptom for a considerable amount of time um, at the beginning of the disease and into the mid-course is loss of language or loss of, of speech, gradually deteriorating language and speech, without the same um, degree of impairment to other cognitive skills. Um, so, But in all... So everything's these, working, yet it's, it's just Well, a, relatively well-preserved are the cognitive skills for a number of years for these people, and, and they're suffering from this frustration of their their language, their ability to express themselves and and to maintain relationships through conversations and communication. That's what is causing them the most significant difficulty in their everyday life. So, so when we talk about this, we're not just talking about talking, we're talking about all forms of communication in that way so we're talking about um you know expression and writing and things yeah, like that yeah. as well so that's kind of i guess that's what um entails language or communication is not only just talking like you said or speaking it's also reading writing understanding language is a big big one yeah, and, of course. And, um, i had these questions written down i've got a funny feeling we've asked them without we've answered yeah. them without asking <laughs> needing to ask the question so are there any other common symptoms but are there any other common symptoms other than the ones we've... Word, word finding is the most sort of um, common symptom the, the, in the language the most noticeable, yeah, um, dementias. Yeah. But also understanding language. I think like mm. people underestimate often that um, we actually speak in incredibly complex sentences when we talk because we kind of, you know, we, we talk while we think and while we think then we make up we, we interrupt sentences and we start new and and that's actually really confusing and so um, 
for people with dementia, research shows that actually if you form just simpler sentences, their understanding of what you say is can be so much more enhanced and um, facilitated. Okay, okay so, so let me get this question out then, because I think you're answering it already. So my <laughs> next question was, what does what does a speech pathologist uh, do to address communication impairment? Hmm. Uh, well, um, I suppose it's important to say that speech pathologists um, approach intervention um, in a person-centered way. So speech pathologists have a diverse range of um, therapeutic methodologies and will design a specific program for each individual dependent upon their strengths and their weaknesses. So, you know, a good thorough assessment, um, good um, collaboration with the person with the language-led dementia and their caregiver um, leads to the development of a program that hopefully enhances their, their, their retained abilities, their strengths, and um, looks at compensatory strategies for their weaknesses. Um, this group of people are very diverse. Um, the, the symptom complexes are very different. It's not a homogenous group where everyone's exactly the same. So it really takes um, a speech pathologist's skills to work out what's the best intervention program for each individual. So there are things you can... I mean, is that the focus of your... Re- what is your research question, Louise? I mean, is, is, I assume that there are things you can do then. It's not just... Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, maybe some some examples of what that might, might look like. What um, Kathy was talking about is, um, you know, there's what Anna Volkmer is doing, who's been on the podcast several times, is, um, you know, communication partner training, for example. So that would be actually educating and training the caregiver um, or the family member or the friend um, to to enhance and maximize communication with little strategies like, you know, simplify what you say or collaboratively um, mm. talking, um, things like that. But then there's also... Um, there's the, we do have some um, actual what we call impairment-focused um, remediation sort of therapy tasks. So they need to be personally relevant, um, but together again collaborating with the person and their carer, working out specific words that are, are no longer available readily for them in their conversations um, so an example might be you might like to go down to the coffee shop every morning and order um, a soy latte and a freond. Well, if those nouns are not available to you anymore, that whole beautiful situation becomes really difficult for you. So you you can actively relearn those specific nouns and then help the person develop scripts to help them practice using them in the real-life situations, and that helps them be <coughs> able to still participate in a, in a social activity they, they love. So that's a sort of an example of how we can do impairment-based um, interventions. We can also, for some people, it's more the motor component of their speech might be impaired and so they might benefit from um, uh, alternative communication aids, so low-tech or high-tech. might be as simple as a pad and a paper or it might be... Um, a voiced, uh, you know, a, a text-to-talk app. Well, that was going to be my question, is as technology kicked technology, in here. Because, of course, technology yeah. is coming in across yeah. the board now yeah. in Super wearable exciting. technologies yeah. and particularly in other areas. Yeah. Like, we've seen it used Telehealth so effectively as well, in motor neuron disease yeah. and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so pro- providing, um, I guess, you know, therapy via, via Skype or video conferencing or um, using picture-based communication has been proven extremely. Pictures, yeah. Um, I've seen yeah. that a lot of conferences where they're, you know, bringing... This. So that's great. So, yeah, I didn't answer your 
I was going to say, before. what is your research question? Yeah, what <laughs> so have you decided I guess, on? I guess my point was um, <laughs> that there is lots that can be done and that's um, actually not very, I guess, not on the... F- forefront of people's minds we, we focus when we think of dementia we often think of the cognitive aspect and I mean language is part of cognition but I guess more of the memory aspect of it um, but actually language as such as a cognitive ability is also impaired and um, I'm not saying you know cognition is not the rest of the cognitive abilities are not important but um, because we express who we are you know, that's almost the essence of being yeah. human. Um, we need to put a focus on that as well. And so I'm. the problem is, um, like I said before, that people with dementia who have communication difficulties often don't get the support that they that might help them or that they need. Um, and so I'm working on a tool, on a, on a questionnaire, on a simple questionnaire um, that can easily identify people who have... Um, the need for communication support. So is there communication impairment present? And also what level of support might they need? Um, the whole thing is obviously, it sounds so nice and I was really well, no, I super that, happy no, no, when no, I was... That sounds <laughs> really interesting because of course you've got various aspects there, aren't you? Because you can look at, you've got the quantitative part to that prior mm-hmm. proving that there is a need for this by by looking at the statistics around yeah, absolutely. around use and support and of course all this work is on the premise that there are the clinical services and the money and the support there to actually deliver this mm-hmm. which but again you can use your research to make mm-hmm. to make an argument mm-hmm. for investment in those mm-hmm. absolutely in those as ways. we gather more evidence to support the use of behavioral interventions then we can apply for for funding of more sort of service to deliver it when they prove yeah when it's yeah. proven that it's needed so that's that's fascinating thanks louisa um kathy can i come to you and ask because your research is a little well i'm not going to say more specialized because that sounds like it's like better in some way <laughs> well, she is on the bright side <laughs> she, <laughs> she's the good one it's <laughs> quite specialized so looking at a specific uh, uh, a very particular aspect of this, yes. this challenge. So can you tell us about your research? Yeah, so my, my research focuses on primary progressive aphasia and you've explained what that is. And these um, behavioural interventions um, can enhance people's well-being and their ability to communicate. And so my research looks at which ones are effective and and what, what makes them effective and, you know, which ones are most suitable for which people. All right, so 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 there's that there are more than you know there are multiple tools you can play. Multiple and are these tools. things that are already in use in clinical practice, or are these new things that you're you're developing, or are you kind of moulding from ver- pulling on from various places? Um, that's a good question. Um, some of them, some interventions, have been taken from. Uh, the practice that we use in stroke aphasia so we need to be able to um, we need to be able to establish whether they're effective for people with progressive language-led dementias um, so that's one aspect um, some some need to be modified and tweaked and and have additional strategies to help for instance with things like generalization so when I gave the example of learning the words, we know that people can learn words. With People with language-led dementias can learn words, individual words, but we're having great difficulty proving that people can use those words in, um, in everyday 
real life situations and and that's the goal of treatment obviously and so um, one of the studies in my research looks at additional techniques additional um, therapeutic techniques that can be added to that learning to help achieve the generalization of the positive gain into um, everyday life and so tell me do you get the do you get to refine things because obviously in research you set your research question and you go about proving whether you know that that works or doesn't work of course that's not particularly helpful in real life clinical practice when you're trying to use these tools so do you do you have the opportunity to tweak and refine your tool along the way or do you separate out the the right we have a period of developing this this tool this intervention that we're going to apply and you realize during that time you're going to have some some things that work and some things that don't mm. work and then when you finally arrive at a tool that you think works yeah. is when you kick in with the yeah I think that's that would be the way approach. to go I mean I think it's different um f- like I'm developing a, a tool from from scratch basically um and until this tool can be used I probably need to do a postdoc it won't even be in the state of being used after this PhD unfortunately it'll be a draft it'll be a pilot version but then you know you need to test it see if it's usable if if people actually take it up and um so you've got quite qualitative approach to this it's not just you you know we've got all the quantitative bit before about looking at the challenges and whether this is useful well, because and they the... come up they come up as you as you kind of do your research so obviously I've, I've had a conversation with um speech pathologists in the field to speak about okay well because i really wanted to do something practical something that i can give to the community after i was finished so that was my great vision when I started the PhD two years ago I, 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 mean, I, I, I love there being a direct I mean in my own work I love there being a direct line of sight between what we're doing and yeah. people really benefiting yeah. at the end I you know this idea that we just researchers research for research sake with a question that just pops up and gets published yeah. into some obscure journal yeah. I I mean, all respect to Absolutely. people that work in that I way, agree, but yeah. you don't but want it to be collecting dust. It doesn't excite me. You know, no, yes, I mean, yeah. you you want something that's actually going to be out there and use, yeah. uh, and that's your aim. Yeah, and um, you know, I'll I'll continue to work on that aim, but um, there's also then you know time restraints. Like I, I think I, I spent about half a year actually finding my topic, and when I had it, I was like, yes, this is great, this is it. And then you run into all these difficulties, like. Okay, I've come up with a great set of items, and um, you know, because you have this tool there that's in a good shape, and then um, you ask yourself suddenly, okay, uh, how do I scale these items? How do I make sure that people get, in the end, you know, they're going to answer all these questions, but how do I make sure that they get divided into the right category? Like, how am I going to assign points to each item do they have the same does the item have the same value each item of the tool um you know do i give it one point or three points or how in the end will i decide actually who will be in what category so i have a huge appreciation now for for good tools as well (laughs) for good instruments that (laughs) can measure because it's actually really difficult it's not just coming up with questions and uh yeah there there you go and but it's 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 a really thorough process that takes a long time if you want to have a good research tool and having a tool is no good if nobody knows how to actually use it so you've got to give good you've got to produce the kind of instructions to go alongside that and the training and the support to support although I guess if you get all that out of the way then when you do come round to 
to spread and adoption and promotion of this it should mm. be applicable is that does that sound is that the same in your work Kathy? Mm, yeah absolutely I mean um, I sort of came from a slightly different angle than uh, came to research from a different angle than uh, Louisa in that the the questions arose in my clinical work and then I so I went into the PhD knowing exactly what my questions were well not exactly they had to be tweaked a bit but but I had a really good idea of what what I was interested in um in finding out about um and then again the same as you've just mentioned both of you the idea is that it will translate into clinical practice um some years ago um a colleague and I Rachel Kingmar did a survey of um uh, speech pathologists' attitudes and, and and knowledge of PPA and service provision in PPA in New South Wales. And that's actually the... Uh, Anna repeat, replicated that and expanded upon it in the UK. And we, we both found that speech pathologists felt very um, lacking in resources and lacking in um, clinical pathways to, to manage this caseload. So I'm hoping that my research will answer some of those questions and provide some of that... Uh, guidance of how we should um, manage yeah. this population with an evidence base. So have you have you both had something that just didn't work? I mean, you've obviously been, you, you know, you're both, the interesting thing is you both, because you've both come from the background before mm. and you're working practice, one assumes that everything you try, you just know, you know, will work. Assume. Because I don't know if that's really true. <laughs> I mean, how much, <laughs> have um, you had many just... You know, you've developed something and just people didn't get it or it didn't prove what, you know, it just, it wasn't working in the population that you've tried? I think for me it's more the, I guess, the methodology. But um, I think I, I overestimated what I could achieve in three years. And so, you know, tools, you want them to be um, psychometrically valid, so reliable and, and valid for use um, and I've come as far as you know uh, proving that the content of the tool the content validity is is good it's it's valid um, and I've you know kind of tried to develop the items of the tool together with people with dementia and their carers and um, and um, experts around the world uh, through through a Delphi survey um, but yeah I you know I, I was just hoping that I'd get much further with actually with a, with a pilot tool that is you know much more I mean? usable than it is right now. <laughs> and that's, do you know what, I think if anybody who's listened to our previous podcasts will know that that's such a common theme throughout this is is, is you kind of start off thinking, hey, I'm full-time, I can do this. Mm. And then a year in, you're thinking, oh, my goodness, I've not made half as much yeah. of progress. I mean, and it's not just necessarily a... Uh, you know, a problem with the student understanding the amount of work. I mean, there are just systematic delays along the way. Mm. Getting ethics can That's take right. quite a long time. Yeah. Finding the subjects to yeah. the, the people to participate in your research can take huge. a long time. Yeah. And particularly, um, yeah, I'm, this is a nice segue into my next question, particularly if you're working mm. um, as well and trying to earn a living and in your in your chosen profession. Mm. So uh, as researchers and students and jobbing clinicians, how do you actually manage your time to do all those those things do you do you sleep do you actually have a yeah. social life oh yeah, Go on, Kathy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> i think in australia you're very precious about um about your work life it's like balance. doing a phd on holiday right i mean 
Because <laughs> it's just sunny all the time. And... That's right. You go to the beach, you take your laptop, you know, get Look, a bit there's, of sand there's on some it. Really, there's some big practical problems like, you know, you have two emails, you have two sets of um, administrative systems that you're, you know, working in and two sets of colleagues. And, but and you have to wear a uniform. No, <laughs> not in Australia. <laughs> I would not wear eye work. Um, but look, there are really great synergies because the clinical work and the PhD work is the same topic, the, you know, the same group. Um, I'm always thinking... Um, about PPA and behavioural interventions in PPA and what works and what doesn't work and yeah one one informs the other so there's there's yeah there's challenges but there's great advantages too yeah and that's you know that's that's a great that's probably the ideal you know for someone like Kathy to work clinically in the exact field that you're researching to um, for me I work in the private practice so it's a very diverse <clears throat> caseload so actually my one of my largest caseload at the moment is actually people with an intellectual disability. So it's not not so related. I mean, you know, you do get the occasional person with dementia, but as I said, like this area is actually underserviced. And even if we do get people with dementia, it's often that we look more at swallowing difficulties, not mm. at communication difficulties. Well, that's a good topic. We should do another one on that because uh-huh. that's come up quite a few times before as well. Yeah. But so I guess, but I mean, I suppose dealing with things like um, anybody with communication difficulties kind of suffers uh, from the frustrations or, mm. you know, has to deal with the frustration that that brings and, and dealing with agitation is obviously being a big, a big topic in dementia as we reduce use mm-hmm. on antipsychotic medications that we've been trying to over the last few years. So I guess you can still use the strategies that you employ in working just yeah. with people. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, for sure. That's where Anna's work is going, um, Louise's work is going to add a lot because often if... Um, if strategies can be put in place early, a lot of that frustration and agitation can be sort of minimised or avoided for a long time. If if partners learn how better to communicate with their person with dementia, um, be, uh, challenging behaviours sometimes don't develop in the same to the same extent or in the same way. So it's uh, it's sort of almost like a preventative um, you know strategy to come in early with an intervention. So it'll be really good. <laughs> I think it's different for you as well, isn't it? Because I guess you're, the, the, the work you're doing to also earn a living and keep the wolf from the door is the, generally, at least in the field of your research, mm-hmm. you're not having to take yeah. work outside sure. of, your, yeah. Yeah. of no. your area. And so also as well, I mean, I'm guessing, as we've just said, remaining in practice actually helps, even if it does yeah. mean your study might take a bit longer. But are your supervisors sympathetic to this? In fact, Kathy, do you, I mean, one assumes you have a supervisor because you're very, I mean, you know, you're, you're very expert in your area. You've been doing this a long time. So how do you find, is your supervisor like less experienced than you? Oh, no, no, not at all. No, I have a great... Be careful what you say. Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have fabulous um, supervision from Professor Lindsay Nichols and my co-supervisors, Dr. Karen Crute. So okay. they're both eminent experts in aphasia and primary progressive aphasia. And no, they're absolutely been supportive of me being part-time up until now because because of that yeah, idea exactly. of trying yeah. to recruit yeah. people. Yeah, a- access to the population has been the main issue. Yeah. yeah. I suppose it's interesting to go about finding a supervisor when you're so experienced because then you're looking to the people you know who are very 
eminent in their profession yeah. can be a bit different. What about you, um, Louisa? I just, um, I guess I feel at the moment, like this is the pinnacle of what I wanted to do, um, you know, being able to practice um, in the field, but also have that um, that, that um, academic or research opportunity. So I think, you know, we talk a lot about evidence-based practice and um, unless you know kind of both sides of of the coin, of the picture. Yeah, <laughs> coin, coin works. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I think like how, you know, how is someone who works in clinic and has never read an article or learned to understand what, you know, how research methodology works how are they going to work evidence-based or how is a researcher who doesn't know what clinic they're like what the restrictions of practice are the challenges that people clinicians have you know how are they going to actually know that the intervention that they are planning um is going to be applicable yeah, or trans- translated yeah into yeah. into practice um so i think there's like it's it's beautiful to have that opportunity to be kind of the link between both worlds and um, I, I, I think that's really what I wanted to strive for just with a little bit more experience so that's going to come. <laughs> so would you, would you encourage others? I mean obviously I'm hoping that this podcast is, is listened to because there's a, there's a real push at the moment particularly mm. in the UK I, I don't know if it, it's the same here in Australia to encourage um, you know the, the non what am I thinking? Not non-medical professionals, mm-hmm. but you know, people uh, working in in the allied health professions, like physiotherapists and speech and language mm-hmm. therapists and nurses and and others, to come out um, from the wars and and to do more work in academia. Would you recommend that to other people? Do you, as it, or is it just the kind of people you are? Do you feel yeah. like it's benefited? I mean, I, I I'm a big fan because I think mm-hmm. the they're the people who really know. You know what's what's needed, yes. particularly in that kind of area. Absolutely. Look, look, I would because I've found it as you as you said. I've been in this job for a long time, and I've found um, engaging in you know the PhD has just made it all much more stimulating and exciting. I've learnt new skills that then translate back to the workforce that I share with my colleagues back in the hospital. Um, I'm constantly excited about what I'm going to do next. I think because I do have a background of having worked for a long time in stressful hospital environments that I cope with the stress of, of doing a PhD much better than maybe if I had approached it younger. Um, yeah, I think there's lots of benefits. I would encourage And Yeah, and I people. suppose, and I mean, do you have the chat? I mean, I suppose you don't just magically one day fill in a form and say, I'm a researcher now. I mean, do you get the opportunities to, to go and learn, to learn different research methods? I mean, is it, do your universities provide those yeah. courses? I mean, to... I don't know about uh, Macquarie. I'm assuming it would be similar or the same. Yeah. Um, but the University of Sydney is um, incredible in, in supporting their young uh, researchers I mean I, I can visit any seminar that I want to visit there's there's all that technical support you know I'm not that things technically like using like, statistics yeah or like you know kind of survey tools like online survey tools or things like that there's just ample support and and we've got our own room even and they you know they you can you can borrow a laptop for the time I, I just I just feel extremely supported there's no reason why you wouldn't be able to um, so that, finish your PhD if yeah, you start with that type of support. Having, yeah, yeah. But having said that, I know like from Germany, for example, where I did my master's degree, 
they expect much more autonomy. So you, you do have a similar support, but you have to go look for it. It's not just kind of... I feel like he had served to you on a silver plate. Very supported. You know, yes. It'll be interesting. Well, I'll have to ask that question to colleagues back in the UK to see if they they feel it's the mm. same there. I, I know I've got a, a colleague at the minute, uh, Lachini, who's been looking at things like what support uh-huh. universities offer you in terms mm. of that that training and support. Mm. To, because I think particularly if you're coming out of clinical practice. It to, to think about it, you need that, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like you've just followed this academic career straight from doing a master's into a PhD and, and that comes with it. Mm-hmm. You you need those skills, particularly also as well, and I should mention this, of course, is if you're coming to, to academia later in life as mm-hmm. well, where this hasn't been something that's that's been there mm-hmm. during your yeah. earlier career. Can I just add to um, your question before as to whether you recommend doing a PhD while working or like even coming from allied health into into a PhD um, I, my first reaction was like yes yes do it but then you know research is not for everyone like if you don't if you're not passionate about your topic if you don't like lots of reading and writing and kind of I guess taking the next step as it comes um, I don't think I would recommend it because then it's just going to be a big pain. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think, you know, like you've just like if you have an interest in research, if you're interested in in maybe yeah, becoming that link between between practice and and or even just, you know, becoming a lecturer or we need researchers in the field of, of um, speech pathology, allied health, <clears throat> particularly particularly, I think, in speech pathology, because we just need the evidence base to to say like we know we've got the knowledge, the practical knowledge. We think that a lot of things work, but now nowadays we're so focused on numbers and on tangible evidence that yeah. just saying oh yeah it works in practice it doesn't help anymore. So if you know you're helping the profession, you're helping actually the people that you are working with by becoming a researcher and, and adding to that to that evidence. So yeah. generally yes, but then. Don't just go for the sake of it. Don't just do it for no. You do have to getting be driven, a title. You know, you... driven and passionate about it. Because I mean, the dropout yeah. rates amongst PhDs are, mm-hmm. you know, are huge, aren't they? I've got so many questions I'd like to <laughs> ask you, but um, I realise that we're we've 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 talked so much that we're kind of almost out of time. I, just before I I go into the the final bit here. Um, we did touch on this before, of course, we're here in Sydney, which is a fantastic place. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have listeners to our podcast from across the world. The majority are the UK, but then I think the US and Australia and India and over 47 different countries, uh, people wow. from across the world do listen to our podcast. So obviously, I guess this is probably more particular to you, Louisa. You came from Cologne to mm-hmm. Sydney. Was that a good decision? Would you recommend others yeah. <laughs> if you like summer, She's come converted. to see me. If you like sunshine and daylight yeah. and, and the beach. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, Sydney is a great city to live in. The, I think the quality of life standard is, is extremely high. Um, I do, I must say, uh, I, I love my hometown um, and, and I do miss it a lot. As your mum's listening to this now. <laughs> Probably all my friends. I'm going to watch. I'm going to to look at the statistics next week. We had somebody else do this who did the AIC last year and suddenly when this little spike in New Zealand has all his family listened. I'll watch for that in Cologne. Um, No, but Sydney, if you love the beach, like I said, and if you love summer and the sunshine, it's it's an amazing city to be living in. 
So you both recommend your universities as fantastic mm. places to study? Absolutely. Yes. In Sydney. Yeah. So so everybody should consider applying. Yeah. And, Come and over. honestly, I can <laughs> and let I, us know if you do. <laughs> I can support that. Okay, so it's time to end today's podcast recording. I'd like to thank our panelists, Louisa and Kathy. Thank you. Do you know what? I've got this question in here. Louisa, you and I are recording another podcast later on, so I'm gonna reserve that question. Kathy, do, are you on social media? Do you do are you a tweeter? I am. Yes. Okay. What's your What's your Um, I'm I'm a very <laughs> sparse tweeter, but uh, I do have a Twitter account, Kathleen Rubin, with you know capital C, capital R, one. Kathleen Rubin one, and um, we'll put that in the feed for this as well. So if anybody would like to um, touch base with Kathy after hearing the podcast today and to talk more about your work, also as well, we publish uh, biographies on both of our um, or on all of our panelists on the website as well. Um, if you go to being a dementia researcher on the website, you'll find um, you'll find profiles on all our contributors. Um, if anybody's got anything to add on this topic, please do post your comments in the forum or on our website or drop us a line on Twitter using the hashtag ECRDementia. And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember, as I mentioned earlier, you can tune into part two, um, which is also available in the feed to hear how researchers at University College London are also looking at this same topic. Um, if And if you'd like to come into the studio and talk about your own work, please do drop us a line. So finally, remember to subscribe, like and share and review our podcast. And please do tell your friends and colleagues. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you, Louisa. Ryan, Thank you, Kathy. I Thank hope you. you enjoyed this. I certainly did. It was fascinating. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.